is the Lightning Junkie Podcast with your host, Chaz Christensen. On this 24th episode of the podcast, we have Christian Moss, Lightning Gaming Extraordinaire. Christian is currently working for a company called Zebedee, which is providing APIs and SDKs to Lightning Gaming developers to make it easier for them to operate with Lightning. Before we jump into the episode, just a couple quick notes here. I apologize for not having an episode last week. I found a new editing software called Descript, which will now allow me to offer transcriptions from this episode going forward. I might go back later and add the transcriptions for older episodes, but since it's such a time sink, I might not actually do that until the show is very profitable. If you find the transcriptions useful, or if you find the Lightning Junkies podcast to be useful or educational in general, I would ask you to go ahead and donate Bitcoin or Bitcoin over Lightning via my crowdfunding campaign. You can find the crowdfunding campaign at crowdfund.lightningjunkies.net. You can also find other ways to support me at tipping.me and ellencast.com. Both of those links are in the show notes. Two other ways to support the show is to go ahead and sign up for SparkSwap. They allow you to purchase Bitcoin over the Lightning Network directly with USD. They're one of the first services to allow this functionality. And if you sign up with the link in the notes, you can earn 100,000 sats. I'll also earn 100,000 sats. So what are you waiting for? Go ahead and sign up for SparkSwap. We also have Fold. Fold allows you to purchase gift cards using the Lightning Network. I use this quite a bit myself to buy Amazon and Uber gift cards. If you don't want to spend your Bitcoin, you can also use it to buy gift cards with credit cards and debit cards, but you'll actually earn sats back as a reward. Sign up for Fold today and we both earn 20,000 sats. I really think you're going to like today's show. Let's go ahead and jump into it before you guys get tired and switch to a different TV show. like to go ahead and welcome Chris to the Lightning Junkies podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I am really glad to have you on the show here. I know you best from two different things. One was having a Bitcoin node and a Lightning node running on an Android phone. Then just a lot of your prolific Lightning gaming stuff. Before we get into all that, I think I want to take a step back and do the traditional, you know, background history thing. I want to know, how did you get into Bitcoin? But I guess even before that, what is your general background pre-Bitcoin? I'm from England, a small town in England, in the middle of England. At university, I studied computer science and music technology. My university was a bit strange where you had to do like two halves. You couldn't do like one whole. I'm not sure why. So I did computer science, music tech. And I also did a Japanese studies, which is like an extra curricular thing. The course was fairly academic and we didn't actually do any programming. So as soon as I graduated, I went to Japan and became an English teacher. It was a bit random. Whilst I was in Japan, I really started to learn how to program as a hobby. The app store was just came out or it's only been out for a few years. And uh, I just thought it'd be, it'd be cool just to make like a fun game or something. That's how I really got to learn how to program and to make apps and games and stuff like that. I took like a short break for a couple of years to go to Australia. I started to work for an app development company in Australia. At the time, I was making games as a hobby. 
And for that company, we basically made apps for anybody who walked through the door and had like 20, 30 grand and had an idea, all sorts of apps. I made like Angry Bird copies and tried to make the new Facebook. It was all pretty random and quite interesting. One day we had this guy who came in and just said he wanted to make a Bitcoin app. I had no idea what Bitcoin was at the time. I'd never heard about it. My coworker who sat next to me was a somewhat quiet, hidden libertarian turned around in his chair with a big grin on his face and revealed he had Bitcoin and told me what Bitcoin was. That was kind of the start of it. I just fell down the rabbit hole. And most people have this experience where you don't just learn about Bitcoin. It opens you up to like economics and politics and all sorts of things. Just to be clear, when was this? Oh, this was 2013. I remember because Mount Gox is pretty big. I actually tried to register for Mount Gox and it didn't happen because like a waiting list and then the whole thing with Mount Gox happened where they stopped withdrawals and all that. So it was definitely around like late 2013. You're definitely correct that a lot of different people can jump in and then start going down all the various rabbit holes that Bitcoin has to offer. Which one did you latch on to the most? Very often people might tell me technology, economics, or some combination. I remember when it was explained to me, my first thought was there's only 21 million of these. Like, I just thought I had to just get one because if it becomes popular, the fact that it was limited means that the price would be crazy. So I guess the first reason was purely just because of that. Afterwards, I would say it was about half the technology and half the self-sovereignty aspect of it. I started to listen to podcasts on economics, I started to read books, etc. I was also very interested in the technology as well. So that's one of the appealing things about Bitcoin. You know, it's not just one thing. It's politics, it's economics, it's technology. It's also social. You, you know, you can make some good friends out of it. You know, I think, I think I've got a friend in every country in the world now due to Bitcoin. In 2013 or so. You launched into the rabbit hole. How did things go from there? At the time, I was actually a hobby. I was making like an app, like a simple game on iOS. The first thing I did was like, it'd be cool just to put Bitcoin into this game. My initial thought was, you know, I'll just put some Bitcoin purchase into it. But that was against the App Store rules where if you buy anything, it has to be through Apple's in-app purchase. I thought, okay, well, if I can't do that, I'll just reverse it instead of the user sending me Bitcoin, I'll send the user Bitcoin. I made this game that as you played it, the game would just like randomly throw Bitcoin at you. That was my first introduction. And I also made a wallet at the same time because at the time there was no wallet on iOS. All the wallets had been banned by Apple. And that was kind of a big thing at the time. I thought my job basically was submitting apps to Apple because we had so many clients making an iPhone app. I knew how to get things approved. So I made a Bitcoin wallet and I submitted to Apple. And at the time, it was the only wallet in the App Store, I think. And that was a long time ago, and it was a terrible wallet. It basically used the blockchain.info API. It's a funny story because I sent it, and I think it was on Coindesk, and it got a bit of press. And then I opened my inbox, and I got an email from Andreas Sinopoulos. I was excited because, you know, like it was Andreas, and I just got into Bitcoin, and he was like a hero of mine. So I opened an angry email from him basically saying, who are you? Are you a scammer? Are you trying to fish our users? At the time, he was chief security officer at blockchain.info. And my app was using their API and things like this. So I was a bit shocked in a way, you know, to get like email from a hero of mine that was somewhat angry. But it all worked out in the end. I explained what it was and it was just wanted to get a wallet into the app store. Um, so those were my two main projects. The first one was a wallet and the other one was a Bitcoin tipping game. Whatever happened to the tipping game, I'm assuming that stayed on the back burner after that. The tipping game, it 
got quite popular in the crypto world, in the Bitcoin world. Um, it's like 2014. I made a few other games. I think I had about three or four games on the go. I had moved to Japan and I was doing some collaborations with businesses in Japan. I had this like Pokemon Go style geocaching game, which actually came out before Pokemon Go. So I was a little bit ahead of this. Yeah, the idea was that you could drop Bitcoin anywhere around the world and other people would go and pick it up. So I had a few apps on the go and that was kind of what I was known for. Obviously, like the whole scaling issue happened. So it just became quite expensive to send like tips to the users to send Bitcoin because obviously the fees were costing like a dollar, two dollars. So it wasn't really feasible. I knew that Lightning and Layer 2 was coming out. So I, I really quietly just shut them down with the idea to bring them back when Lightning was ready, uh, which is basically what I'm doing now. Um, working with Zebedee, which is a, a Lightning gaming company. We're basically building tools and SDKs to help game developers add Bitcoin into their games powered by the Lightning Network. That's really what happened to the projects. They were popular, but then they couldn't really scale. I knew they couldn't really scale because Bitcoin was new. So I knew there would have to be some sort of layer two technology. I stopped adding new users and quietly shut them down and put them into hibernation. A question that occurs to me going down this path is, do you think, I mean, it's kind of broad, so forgive me, but do you think blockchains in general make good backbones for gaming experiences over the long term? I just thought that blockchains were this amazing scalable thing and everybody would use blockchains as a database and we could scale massively. I think that was the impression at the time, at least with most developers that I knew. You learn more about the technology, you find that blockchains are basically terrible at scaling, you know, that they inherently can't scale. If you try to scale them, you run into all sorts of trade-offs and issues that affect people's ability to verify the network. My contemporaries at the time, they were also building on Bitcoin. A lot of them got frustrated with Bitcoin and at the time Ethereum had came out. So they all moved to Ethereum because they were frustrated that Bitcoin couldn't scale. But Ethereum, they thought was this one that could scale because the community was behind it. Even now they have their scaling issues as well. I think blockchains themselves are basically terrible at scaling. I don't even think the base layer itself is suited towards gaming. You know, it's really, it's more about, you know, being able to um, not rely on a third party to make a transaction. 99% of gaming, you don't necessarily need that level of security. I think that the layer two and threes that are anchored to the base layer is where gaming has an opportunity to thrive, not on blockchain itself. I think it depends what you mean by blockchain. You have a lot of blockchains, which are like gaming blockchains, but they're really more distributed databases. So maybe they have a place, but blockchain as in the Bitcoin blockchain is just terrible for gaming. Addressing the people that went over to Ethereum as a response to Bitcoin's scaling issues, quote unquote, would you say to them, hey, you know, you went over to Ethereum, how is that working out versus, you know, me over here working on Lightning? Do you think that you're going to have a much easier time working on Lightning? Do you have an argument going in that direction? I think it's a little bit hard to compare Ethereum with Lightning because um, like a lot of people, they went over because of the scaling issue. I'm not just talking about Bitcoin as in payments here. I'm also talking about at the time we were doing a lot of tokens on Bitcoin. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with the counterparty protocol. Absolutely. We were doing a lot of gaming with the counterparty protocol and that had like a built-in DEX and you could also make an NFT where you could issue one game item that was unique. So it was possible to do a lot of the NFT stuff that people are doing on Ethereum, but a lot of the 
counterparty people went to Ethereum because of the fees. Having said that, a lot of it wasn't just about the fees. It was the fact that with Ethereum smart contracts, you have a lot more flexibility to do more complicated things. A lot of it was that they wanted the ability to do like smart contracts and things like this. Just to answer your question, um, I don't know, it's hard because I think there's a catch-22 situation where as a, a business or a startup, you want to be the first to do something. You want to be the first person, the first team to make a cool blockchain game. The problem is if you're too early, the technology is not there. And I would argue that the technology on Bitcoin and Ethereum isn't there. You're in danger of making something too soon and you've blown through your budget and it doesn't scale because the technology isn't ready and then your company fails. On the other hand, you could wait for the right technology to come about. By the time it does, a competitor may have beat you to it. I think a lot of the Ethereum projects and even some Bitcoin projects are a little bit like that, where there's some exciting proposals and protocol to do a lot of the smart contracts on Bitcoin, you know, but the companies aren't going to wait around for that to be built on top of Bitcoin. They're going to start doing it on Ethereum now, but because they're doing it on Ethereum, blowing through budgets, building their tech on like a stack that doesn't really scale. I feel for them, it's catch 22. Luckily, like I think I was quite small and I hadn't had any investments. So I was okay waiting for something like Lightning to come. For other businesses, it's a difficult problem to solve. You can't just tell them to stop your business and wait for the technology to evolve. I feel for them in that respect. I think it's also important to point out that I think Lightning for gaming and Ethereum for gaming is slightly different things because Lightning in the moment only does payments. I don't see a situation where it can do NFTs. I'm not even sure if it's possible. Going back slightly in what you were saying there, you're mentioning how it's a little early to be in Ethereum Bitcoin on some level, waiting for things to be there for these games to actually take off. Do you think that similar line of logic would apply to Lightning as well? I think the chance is zero, right? You know, Lightning is still early days. The only thing I would say that Lightning scales a lot better than Ethereum. I think it's perfectly feasible and possible to have a scalable game built on lightning to some extent at the moment i think i guess game developers just have to be aware and like a number one game in the app store is going to have like 100,000 daily active users and i think even that on the current lightning stack is going to be tricky you could probably do it quite easily if you centralize certain parts of it which i think is probably okay for gaming because gaming in a way itself is quite centralized i.e you know people are playing in a virtual world which is completely centralized so i think you can get around it but obviously lightning doesn't solve all our scaling issues but it's in the right direction lightning can iterate a lot faster than bitcoin can because you don't need consensus of the whole network lightning and layer two solutions it's the start that we can actually start building some product on them which will scale and should have a decent user base having said that i'm not expecting the whole of world of warcraft to be on lightning this year maybe a few years down the line it would be possible but i think that's not necessarily lightning itself i think it's more just the onboarding people to the lightning network where there's still a bottleneck right you know the opening and closing transactions that's still probably going to be the the largest hurdle to tackle i think i want to go back to your history here since you had jumped into the lightning topic how did you actually start developing on lightning what was your first project there i think i mentioned before i had this geocaching app that was built on bitcoin base layer i think my first project was actually i made a demo a prototype of that on lightning I remember because it was when the new revamp Star Wars came out. 
I think it was like Christmas Day or something. I remember just sending it to Twitter and then going to see that at the cinema. It was just when the Lightning Network had just become public. Jake, that was more just like a demo prototype of it. I never actually finished it because it's evolving into something else, which will be released sometime this year. I haven't actually released a production Lightning game yet. The coming in the next few months, I have teamed up with and co-founded a Lightning startup called Zebedee, and my Lightning games plan to use their APIs and SDKs. The release date is in line with our company roadmap. Got quite a few exciting games that are planned that will be coming out this year. You want to go ahead and share for the listeners? Yeah, sure. One of the games that I'm working on at the moment, it's going to be playable at some of the conferences this year, such as Bitcoin 2020. It's a Street Fighter type game. It's got a few things going on. It's a two-player battle game, and you can fight an opponent. And as you punch, hit and punch each other, you basically stream stats between you, right? If I punch the other player, then to me and vice versa versa it's non-custodial there's a two-player match and there's an audience watching it the audience can stream bitcoin into the game and that bitcoin will be represented as power-ups or things like this like help the players out then vice versa the game can also stream bitcoin out to them for example we've got some sponsors on board so the audience members can be streaming that's into the game to help the players, but they can also get some stats out from the sponsors. There's a few exciting things going on in that game. Onto the other games as well, Saratobi, which is like a simple mobile game where it's basically you have to like tap a screen and you swing a monkey and see how far the monkey can fly. It's like a casual style game, but that game has a model where it will send stats back to the players based on advertising revenue. This is a model a few of game developers we're working with are interested in. The idea that your game has ads and or sponsors, and then a certain percentage of the ad revenue you send back to the players as a reward. And it's a great way to onboard people into Lightning. We've got a, a geocaching game, like a Pokemon Go style one coming. We've got quite a few. So it's, it's going to be an exciting year. I, I really like a lot of these different concepts that you're introducing here. Are you aware of these kind of things being used in the old school world of gaming? If you go back to really old school games like poker and playing chess, people would basically stream money between them all the time. Every game had like a financial mode where people would like, you know, put down some coins and as they play, you know, they basically be betting coins with other players. With digital games, it really got lost. When digital games first came out, you couldn't stream money because computers weren't there at that time. You know, they didn't even have the internet you kind of had games that had money in them like mario you'd collect coins and a lot of games did this because games and money in the zeitgeist but you technologically couldn't do it when the internet came out we had money in games but you couldn't really send money to players easily so what you had was in-app purchases and loot boxes a few game companies had tried to add their own currency a few of them got shut down because you're not allowed to make your own currency it's been a bit difficult until something like bitcoin came around which makes it possible again now that it's possible with lightning we'll start to see more games implementing player to player streaming and earning sats and sending sats back into their games you're hitting on a very good point there that i definitely see out there on reddit and on twitter etc is the idea that loot boxes are terrible that freemium games are cancer on the planet in some period in the future let's not nail down when but do you think these micro-tipping the user that's gaming is going to become a much more popular dynamic to bring people into games? 
it's hard to say. I think that all the bad stuff that goes on now will continue to go on with Bitcoin as well. If companies can make money out users, they'll try to do that with Bitcoin as well. It gives the users more choice. What I'd like to see are some like smaller games studios trying different practices, such as rewarding the users some sats to try and gain their loyalty. Hopefully users will make the choice to play those games more than the games that try to squeeze every penny out of them. That's what I'd like to see. I think it's important to say that I'm not exactly sure because gaming works well without Bitcoin. To assume that there'll be games and there'll be Bitcoin games is a bit of a strong distinction. I'd like to think that there'll be games that use Bitcoin. There'll be perfectly playable games and you don't even need to use Bitcoin. But Bitcoin is added into it to add an extra level of functionality. It's hard to say what will happen because it's a new technology we have here, which is one of the reasons that we are developing games but we're actually we're not reliant on those games our business model are the apis and sdks and we really want other game studios to develop the games and come up with new ideas we're developing some sample games just to show what we think is possible and just to give game developers who aren't familiar with bitcoin an idea of what they can do but i'm expecting some indie game developer somewhere to come up with an amazing idea that i've never thought of which creates a new type of gaming once the creativity of the gaming of the indie gaming community is unleashed we'll probably see some really cool ideas that's what i find when i go to gaming conferences like most gaming conferences have two sections you have one section which is full of the big players the nintendo's ubisoft and their games are very good and very polished but the indie gaming section is always the most interesting they're always doing like crazy new types of games and new types of gameplay I hope that they will come up with something really cool that shows the power of lightning and Bitcoin in gaming. Do you think that the psychology for gamers changes when the money is flowing in the different direction? I just picture esports being able to be just not even an organized thing per se that, you know, just a group of friends, a wider group of people that aren't necessarily friends, but are maybe in a, in a local area or something, just get together really ad hoc and put together their little thing and be able to just make money playing games. How different do you think the psychology might change if this does get popular? You made an interesting point there. The esports won't have to be organized. One thing we're interested at looking at is um, a lot of games now are played on Twitch. It's quite popular that people have matches on Twitch. It's public to anybody in the world to watch. We're going to be having a few esports matches ourselves where We'll share a link on Twitter and people can see this match on Twitch. And then anybody with a lightning wallet can stream stats into the match to help out. Or maybe somebody else can make a third party betting thing on the match. Going forward, you're going to have a lot more decentralized, unplanned interactions. That's a good thing with lightning. So I, I was actually speaking to some game developers the other week and they were saying, why do we need lightning? Why can't we just use our own coin. Why can't we use like Steam? I, I said, the thing with Lightning is it's an open protocol, right? It's not just one company building a coin that everybody has to try and ask permission to use, but all the different companies and all the different wallets and all the different games are automatically interoperable. That fact alone, we'll start to see the linkage between different games. You'll have the idea that I can be watching an esports on Twitch of one game, maybe make some bets on it, or I can like interact with it. I can get some stats from that game and then I could go to a different Twitch channel, a completely different game, which has nothing to do with the first game. And I can use the stats I got from the first game in this next game, and then even use those stats to buy 
coffee as well so I can take him out of the gaming world. I think at the moment, games are very, very separate things. But if you play Final Fantasy, that doesn't interact with Pokemon Go. There's no interaction across there. If more and more games start to Bitcoin, then you'll start to see that games will naturally have these connections between them that are permissionless, but it makes all the games more valuable because of it. You know, That's kind of where I see it going. Do you see people maybe gaming more because of this and because, hey, I can make money, I'm going to game today? Is that something that you see? I had these games where people could play the game and they could earn Bitcoin. And the Bitcoin was paid for by ads and sponsors. A lot of my users were actually young people from poorer countries. I had a kid who was, I think he was like 16 or something like that, but he was from Afghanistan of like a small village. He managed to get his hand on a smartphone and some basic internet. He would just play my game all day and he didn't like $10 a week or something. That was life changing for him. I'm not saying that all games will become like these financial earners for the third world. What we can probably see is certain ecosystems gaming that can outsource work to people from poorer countries. One example I gave was a lot of people play these online games and you really have to play it all the time in order to make sure your character is leveled up enough. But these people also have to work, right? They have jobs and families and stuff. So they'll pay a company in Korea that will play the game for you whilst you're at work. We'll start to see things like that where, where people can outsource the playing of their games or the leveling up of their characters to people from poorer countries. They'll be paid directly by tax something like that another thing is i think it's quite interesting is you could probably have like bots that play games for you one example we were discussing at zebedee is you could have the computer bots that compete in matches the idea is two people have a bot and basically they charge this bot let's say i don't know ten dollars worth of bitcoin maybe even less a dollar worth of bitcoin and the bot fights another player's bot and the winning bot gets the other player's bitcoin i think you can start to see people having these bots play for them and just like out there on the internet in cyberspace playing games playing matches and earning them an income that's fascinating so what i'm hearing is whoever makes the best machine learning algorithm starts winning all the games and starts making the best passive income possibly yeah it would be great if there's a game studio out there who wants to work with us and develop some sort of bot battling game where users have to design the best bot and it'll just go out and play matches in the cloud and earn it bitcoin yeah I think I saw a few examples of games like that. It was like a non-Bitcoin event, but I just was there just to see what gamers are up to. And there was a game like that as well. It was like a racing game, like an F1 racing game where you, you purchase cars and you tweak your cars, you tweak the settings of your cars. Then these cars basically play other players' cars in the cloud. But there was no financial reward to it. You'd really just get a ranking. So I was thinking that would be perfect. You tweak your car and then the winning car wins the Grand Prix and the lightning from them. I think that would be quite exciting. Definitely going to see things like that. This might be a little out there, but I'm just going to go into it anyway. There's some concept out there that machines are going to get to the point where they're going to replace everyone's jobs, etc., etc. I don't necessarily know where I stand on that, but... I'm taking on that idea for granted for the moment. I really see gaming as a profession being a very popular one in such a future where you don't really need to do anything. You know, all the machines are doing all the things. How deep do you think that idea would go? Do you think it's possible to imagine someone just gaming all day long? We already touched on that a little bit, I guess, but maybe even more so in the Western world as a more mainstream thing. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember I was seeing on TV the other day that they asked kids at school what are your top 
profession when I was in school. It was like being a basketball player or being a football player. These kids, number one was a YouTuber, number two was an esports player, and number three was a game developer. I think just looking at the youth of today, gaming and also online digital presence is definitely going to be prevalent. It only makes sense that monetizing that in the future would be a great opportunity. I'm not sure what degree machines will play. I'm not an expert in machine learning, but I, I suspect that what machine learning we will have will still need kind of a human guided hand. My understanding of general AI is very far off from being realized, if at all possible. Artificial intelligence, which is very good in specific things, is possible and, and already exists. We'll maybe see like these bots or these games where a human has to tweak and guide it. I don't think we'll necessarily see like Skynet and bots just taking over everything per se. It's hard to say. I, I just have a few friends who work in AI and machine learning. And what I hear is like AI is like a buzzword similar to blockchain. When you look into it more, it's all trade-offs and there's limitations. A lot of what I said is premises on fanciful thoughts. If you're thinking like 10 years in the future or a thousand years in the future, right? Yeah. I would guess like a hundred-ish, but I mean, that's also a number that I'm pulling out of my ass. I have seen some scary stuff on YouTube about AI robots, things that come out of Boston Mechanics. Yeah, it is a bit scary to be honest. <laughs> I'm not sure how scared I am of machines in that way. That's just people watching things like Terminator and scaring themselves. Steven Pinker, yeah. this Canadian psychologist, he made the point that a lot of these scare thoughts, AI, is kind of a homo sapien bias. The idea that if things get stronger and more intelligent, their natural instinct is to dominate and destroy. I think he makes this point that we already have an intelligent being that is not violent or does not seek out aggression and they are females like a male human kind of thing that we build these robots that we see in sci-fi that images of us but makes a point that maybe ai wouldn't necessarily be bothered about killing everybody and dominating and taking over territory i will go ahead and reel us back here i was interested in that you had moved to japan gotten a job as an english teacher is that right yeah that's true yeah english teacher is a popular thing to able to do Southeast Asian countries. How did the process go for you? Originally, I didn't want to do it. Originally, I wanted to get like a scholarship and go and study in Japan. But I didn't get the scholarship. I had been studying Japanese and I just graduated. So I just, I wanted to go to Japan. So English teaching was the easiest way to do it. Basically, if you're a native English speaker and you have some sort of college degree, it's very easy to get a job there. I got a job and to be honest, it was one of the best job I ever had. Like financially, it was, it was terrible. You're young, so you don't really had too much i really enjoyed it and my image of it before i went was that i'll be teaching a class of japanese high school kids but the type of school that i went to was a private english school most english teachers teach at private english schools they don't teach at like elementary schools or high schools my average class size was about three people and the three people were basically japanese housewives were a bit bored and it's quite normal in japan for the wife not to work they have bit of free time after the kids have gone to school so they just come to these English schools and just hang out with the other housewives and really have a chat in your native language and the housewives will bring you cakes it was like the easiest best job ever and then you'd get like Japanese businessmen that would come and then you just chat with Japanese businessmen about your country your culture you know what's going on in the world it's like a really good job and I, I do miss it actually. What ended up bringing you to Japan? I went to the classes and really enjoyed the language. The university did like an exchange to Japan that was cheap. I went to Japan for the first time and just coming from like a small town in England it was just crazy in Japan for three weeks as a university student. I just 
fell in love with the country and, you know, I started to learn Japanese. And it, it still is a great place. I should point out, I'm actually based in the UK at the moment. Before we move off this topic, how was the integration when you first moved to Japan? How was that process? I think it's quite easy for English people to integrate. I, I worked at an English school and most of the teachers there were from different countries. I found that English people fitted in the most. I think the reason why is that I think England and Japan are quite similar in a way. We're both old cultures. We're both island nations, quite small. We both have a monarchy. We're quite reserved. Traditionally, we have a class system. We both like to drink tea. So I think it was quite easy to blend in. I remember this one time at the school. I think the manager came in and just said, everybody has to work on Saturday. I'm sorry, but we have to work on Saturday. The Australians and the Americans were like, hell no, this is not in my contract. I'm not doing this. You've got to pay me more. But the Japanese and the English staff like, okay, understand. We'll try our best. I could speak the language, which obviously helped a lot. What was the Bitcoin slash lightning scene like there? I think I must have gone there like 2014 or something. So when I first went there, I think Tokyo Bitcoin Meetup was the first Bitcoin Meetup. That was my first introduction there. And at the time, it, it was run by Roger Ver, the main Bitcoin guy in Tokyo, back in 2014, where everybody was united in Bitcoin. Roger was there and we had lots of people would roll into town. I remember Vitalik being there before Ethereum launched. It was quite funny because he was there before. Before Ethereum launched and it was like sitting in the corner. Very few people were talking to him. Then a few years later, when Ethereum becomes very popular, he came back and like the venue was completely crowded. I think they almost called the fire department in because there were too many people and all these Japanese girls, like he was a rock star. It was really strange to see that change. Obviously, things got a bit sticky when the whole scaling debate happened and there was like a small blocker or like skeptical big blocks. It was a bit difficult to feel welcome at the meetup, you know, so the Bitcoin meetup kind of actually died, I think, because the Bitcoin cash came out. It was kind of strange. So Roger controlled the Bitcoin meetup, and I think he still controls it to this day. He made the Bitcoin cash meetup, but he didn't take his name off the Bitcoin meetup page. He wouldn't take himself off the page. So we couldn't use the Bitcoin Tokyo meetup page anymore. We ended up making our own page called Bitcoin Hackers, which is run by Wiz. If your listeners not familiar with Wiz, he's a cool guy. And Nicola Dorier, I think he's an organizer there as well. Started off good, but then things got a bit sticky, you know, with the whole scaling debate. Strong scene there with the Bitcoin Tokyo Hackers Meetup, which is like the real Bitcoin Meetup. I want to round out the podcast here by just talking about Lightning generally. You've definitely worked with developing on Lightning and developing on different things. You had a Bitcoin full node and an LND node running on an Android device. Do you want to kind of briefly go into that? I'd love to. A Bitcoin company in Japan, I no longer work for, but when I was working for them, I made this um, application called Pebble. Really just like a passion project, you know. I remember AB Core, it came out at the time. LND was out at the time and AB Core is Bitcoin running on your Android phone and LND can be compiled for Android. So I thought, hey, it'd be cool just to put both together and have this fully validating lightning node on an Android device. I built that as an open source project. I left that company and then I started consulting for the Japanese lightning company, Nayuta, and they've taken the project on board and I'm working with them to continue it. We realize it's pretty niche. The way we see it is we think it's very important that barrier to entry to running a full node is as low as possible. As smartphones get faster and internet gets faster, 
we think in the future it's going to be very easy for anybody with like a cheap Android phone. They don't necessarily have to use it every day, but I don't think it's necessarily important that everybody runs a full node all the time. I think it's important that they can do. The idea of anybody with a cheap Android device, and this doesn't even have to be an Android phone, it can be like an Android smart TV or like a plug-in box, like a Fire Stick. Anybody with that can just download an app, you know, and you basically got like self-sovereignty in an app. And I think that's going to be one of the easiest way for people to use Bitcoin properly. You're not relying on a third party. I'm working to help develop that further and just to make it as simple as possible. I think one thing we're also exploring is the idea of it might be a good tool for merchants. So we're hoping to do something with BTC Pay server. So you could integrate BTC Pay server in like an Android app. So any merchant who just had like a cheap Android tablet could basically run a full node with BTC Pay Server. That merchant is self-sovereign rather than at the moment you have to run BTC Pay Server on a server somewhere or you have to buy like a plug-in box or a special piece of hardware to do it. But if it's possible for them just to buy like a $100, $200 tablet, they might even have one lying around. Um, then we think that's going to be a big win for Bitcoin going forward. It's, it's not difficult to do. All the pieces are in place. Green address of Blockstream. Green have done great work on AB Core and Lightning Labs have done great work on LND. And Nayuta is really just bringing both those pieces together. I, I didn't realize you were doing all of that with BTC Pay Server. That sounds even more important. If someone can just pick up some cheap Android device and just get started. On an Android device, it takes a while to sync the whole blockchain. But we have this hybrid method where when you first first start it, it'll use Neutrino, like a light client, which isn't completely trustless. You could use it within like a minute or two. But then in the background, it's syncing the whole Bitcoin blockchain. You can use it straight away with some trust to the miners, but it's still fairly trustless. Like you're not relying on an API or anything like that. It's not centralized. Eventually, over the course of a week or so, it depends how powerful your tablet is. Eventually, it would have synced and verified the whole blockchain, and then it would start to use the fully validating Bitcoin node instead of Neutrino. I'm just talking to the BTC Pay folks at the moment because we're trying to figure out exactly how BTC Pay Server would work with it because BTC Pay Server isn't designed to run on mobile. Do we make like a BTC Pay Server light that's optimized for mobile, but then that becomes a separate repo? So we're trying to work it out. I'll keep my eye out for that because I think the second that it's ready, um, I would definitely load it on my old tablet. Yeah, I'd love to come on again once it's ready and talk about it more. Definitely let me know when that hits. A couple last questions here. The first question was, in the development of these various Lightning things, what was the biggest roadblock that Lightning presented? Oh, there's many. Don't get me wrong. Like, Lightning is definitely, at the moment, it's quite complicated. But I guess the main thing that when I first used to lightning i underestimated was the whole routing issue my original bitcoin games they sent bitcoin to the user so the user would download my game and then they play the game for a bit They'd get like 10 cents worth of bitcoin sent to them you can't do that with lightning out of the box a player would download it they have a wallet but they've got no inbound liquidity somebody's got to open a channel somebody's got to pay for that and somebody got to lock up liquidity for that so that's the main issue you can't accept payments offline, those issues will start to fade away. And that's something Zebedee, we're developing APIs and SDKs help developers not have to worry about those issues. On the flip side, what were the upsides of developing on Lightning? Once your invoice is paid, you can just assume it's paid. Whereas on-chain, you never really knew when your transaction would confirm. So you'd always have to keep an eye on it. Sometimes when things got bad, the transaction would 
drop off the mempool. Fees are a big one. Like not saying that lightning fees will always be super cheap forever, but like obviously they're going to be cheaper and stable than on-chain fees. I also developed some games on Ethereum and I think they had even bigger issues. I found like Ethereum was pretty crazy when I tried to make a game. I don't know if it's better now because like I saw in Ethereum the issues that we knew would happen on Bitcoin if we tried to scale it too much. So obviously on Bitcoin, you know, the block size was kind of capped. It only got to a certain point where, you know, fees would get expensive. But at least when you paid a fee, you know, something would go through. It would be stable if you paid. When I was building on Ethereum, obviously they had a much higher throughput of transactions in a way to try and keep fees cheap. But even if you paid an expensive fee on Ethereum, sometimes the transaction would just disappear and it would turn up an hour later just because there was... With so many forks and uncles and things going on, definitely Lightning being a layer two solution makes it a lot simpler that you don't have to worry about blocks and things getting into a block. Once your channel's open, it's really just between you and the other parties. Do you have a favorite Lightning game or Lightning app that you would like to mention? A bit arrogant to mention my own, I guess. I would probably ask not to mention your own, please. <laughs> Bitcoin Bounce from Jack from Thunder Games, I think is great. It's a very simple concept of a casual game, but it's done really well and it's quite polished. And I think just from his studio, we can expect some more cool lightning games. Um, I think he would be an interesting person to get on the podcast because he is a game developer who actually makes a living making games. And he's decided to try out lightning, which is why his first game is quite simple because obviously he didn't want to invest too much time making like a very complicated game. He just made a simple game just to see how the concept would work, but he did it quite well. I'm really excited about his future projects. I did try that one, and what I really liked about it was the way they deliver the sats to the the player through a raffle thing. So you have a chance of winning, like, let's say 5,000 sats or 25 sats. I think, actually, we talked about that a little bit because my game that is coming out again soon, but was on Bitcoin originally, that would kind of send stats out instantly. So I kind of said, well, why are you doing this daily raffle thing? I think one of the reasons is I think people enjoy the aspect of they're not sure how much they're going to get, but also it helps to mitigate a little bit against bots, which I think bots are going to be an opportunity and a challenge for lightning games. So as we start to see games come out and pay people Bitcoin, what you start to see are people who make bots to try and like get all the Bitcoin. His raffle thing was designed to try and make it more fair for normal players so bots don't have too much of an advantage. Another game I'm excited about, I guess there are two games. The first person shooter games by Donna Labs. It's like a really cool idea that works well with Lightning. And the other one is Light Knight by Satoshi's Games. That looks like quite an optimistic game, but if done well, I think it's going to be pretty awesome. I think we're going to see an explosion because Lightning is so easy to implement into your game. Once we have one game that starts to do fairly well, we'll just see like hundreds of, if not thousands of other game developers jumping in and doing cool stuff with Lightning. I've got ideas myself as well. There's too many games to make and not enough time. Are we going to end up having half of a Bitcoin conference be dedicated to the Lightning Arcade? Zebedee, we're going to be doing some cool stuff at Bitcoin 2020 with gaming. But I think Bitcoin 2020 is in San Francisco. They're going to have an arcade for Lightning. Also, a Magical Crypto Conference, I think they mentioned they're going to have an arcade. Every Bitcoin conference that doesn't have a Lightning Arcade is going to be missing out, right? Absolutely. We have that retro feel going on. Let the kids play their games at the conference early. All right. What is the thing within Bitcoin slash Lightning that you're looking forward to the most? Live on a kind of positive note here. Good question. I suppose like from a technical protocol point of view, I think L2 would be pretty cool. So L2, it's 
an upgrade in Lightning that will just allow new features. The update behind L2 or SIG hash no input in Bitcoin, people haven't realized this, but it should actually make it possible to do off-chain NFTs on Bitcoin. Ruben Somsen, who's like a Bitcoin academic, I would say, he's Dutch, but he's based in Korea. He's come up with this concept called the state chain, which is like a side chain, but it's more trustless, will be possible with SIG hash no input. Obviously, not 100%, but it seems like that will let you do off-chain NFTs on Bitcoin, which I think will be pretty powerful for gaming. So that's definitely something I'm waiting for to happen. And I'm going to jump in and start trying that out. Because at the moment, there's not really any good scalable tech for NFTs in Bitcoin or Ethereum that I know of. And I've looked into Plasma and things like this, but it's all been a bit meh. If listeners want to get a deeper explanation of state chains, they can go back to episode 10. All right. I, I really appreciate you joining me on the podcast. Do you want to go ahead and let the listeners know how they can find you on the uh, internet and all that good stuff? Yeah, I think just find me on Twitter, Mandel Duck. I'm sure it'll be in the show notes somewhere. And also check out Zebedee. That'll be in the show notes. Nayita as well. All right, man. I really appreciate you joining me on the Lightning Junkies podcast. Thanks for having me. Boom. That concludes that episode. Did you learn anything on this week's show? I definitely learned quite a bit. I'm looking forward to a lot of the Lightning games that are coming out in 2020. Are you looking forward to any games coming out this year? Are you looking forward to any of the games that Christian mentioned in the podcast? March is going to be a big month for the Lightning Junkies podcast. The 25th episode especially is going to be a very big episode for me. So please stay tuned, stay excited. For now, I'm going to take a step back, jump into the pool, and say, I will see you on the Lightning Network. Bloop, bloop, bloop.